It's week three of 2018, and we're talking about a lot of cloud news coming out this week, things with Amazon AWS as well as Microsoft Azure. And we're also talking about some security and exploits in Apple. That's all coming up on the IT Pro TV podcast, starting right now. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Peter Van Rysdam, and I am joined, as always, by Mr. Don Pazette. Don, how are you doing? I'm doing swell. Ready to address this week in technology news. Lots of, uh, lots of interesting stuff this week. No no single giant tech event that monopolized the news, but a lot of good stuff. Well, I think the biggest event uh, taking place in the news right now is it is National Popcorn Day. And uh, here at IT Pro TV, uh, we focus on the fact that we have binge-worthy learning. And so we've got the popcorn bucket right here. And, and down in there, as we'll, as we'll dip in uh, a little bit during the show, we've got some <laughs> M&Ms. Uh, down there, that's uh, we had a we have a, uh, a poll going on our Facebook page right now of your favorite flavor, caramel or chocolate drizzle or just good old fashioned butter. And this is uh, this is regular butter with some M and M's in there, which which was my vote. <laughs> so uh, if no you question. hear crunching coming from Peter's microphone throughout the episode, that is not his hopes and dreams being crushed, but simply him eating popcorn. And uh, for our listening viewers who don't get video, you can can clarify that. Yeah, I'll just lean back <laughs> on the mic. There. So, uh, Don, as you mentioned, yeah, there's a lot of different stories to get to today. Uh, the first one it actually kind of harkens back to something we talked about last week, which is Don's love of combining his technology, or or really just trying to get. Uh, get one less device in his pocket or in his bag as he travels. Uh, and so we talked about uh, there was a, a product called Razor last week um, that was, I think, I think it was the, out at the CES. The company was Razor. It was their Project Linda. Project Linda. And, and that was something they were showing off at CES. It was mm-hmm. kind of a, a concept, really, of um, basically a phone that could dock. And that one was in the touchpad, right? Yeah, you drop the phone in and it became yeah, the touchpad. Yeah, so it's essentially your mouse on here. Uh, and so we found an article, uh, and, and I thought Don's going to love this, uh, about how Apple uh, can turn the iPhone into an ultra-portable MacBook Air, basically saying not not that there's any plans to do so, but just that that technology basically exists in the phone now. So I, I like this article because I, I get made fun of around the office. Like, I, I just I, I want to be able to combine a tablet and a laptop, where a phone and a tablet are better, all three. Like, just make it all one big stinking thing. Um, and I, I get made fun of it because I, I have bought numerous products over the years that all claim to do this, and none of them do. Um, but one of the writers or editors over at Macworld, uh, which uh, was it, Michael Simon, where he actually wrote an article. It's an opinion piece. It's just his opinion, but it's definitive evidence and proof that I'm not the only person on the planet who wants this type of technology. Uh, and he's talking about how, man, the, the iPhone is just as powerful as the MacBook Air, you know, a processor for processor or, or memory, uh, that if they would just make it, where you could connect that phone up and stick a screen on it that you'd be able to, to leverage it, or even the iPhone 10 here, uh, that if you could stick a bigger screen on it and a keyboard, you could really make do. And then they go on to talk about the Samsung DeX, which, you know, Peter was making fun of me about before, but I actually <laughs> own that. It's sitting on my desk at home right now, uh, which in theory gives you that ability to turn your phone into a desktop. Now, I need something portable, so it's not quite perfect. I, I need it to combine to a laptop form factor. Uh, but he even goes on to talk about the Razor Project, Linda. Uh, so I, I'm not the only one. And maybe, just maybe, that means one of these days, a company will release a product like this that doesn't suck. And it hasn't happened yet. I bought them all. I know they're, they're all terrible. Uh, but one day, one day it'll happen. 
So even if the tech specs line up, though, hardware to hardware, you're still going to have to run... You're, you're either going to be running a, a lighter version of the operating system, or you wouldn't be running High Sierra, for example, on your phone. Uh, when you dock, you'd kind of get almost like an iPad experience. Yeah, I don't think it'd be almost. I think it would be an iPad yeah. experience, right? Like, But is that a big deal? It used to be a big deal. Like, oh, I need Microsoft Office, so mm -hmm. I've got to have Windows or, or whatever. Um, now you're seeing really full-featured apps coming out for mobile. And so people can exist on just an iPad just fine. Take a product like Adobe Photoshop. Adobe Photoshop is very powerful, and if you run it on Mac OS or if you run it on Windows, you get access to a ton of features. Well, they have Photoshop for mobile, and you can install it on iOS, and it's only got like 20% of the features. But what's the old saying? 80% of the people only use 20% of the features? Like It's good enough for most people and most use case scenarios, and so they can do it. It's more power efficient. It's cheaper and they can get it up going most people would never even miss the the actual desktop operating system by switching to mobile today 10 years ago completely yeah. different story so I, I think we'll see that and and the idea of having android or uh ios or whatever google's cooking up right now this fuchsia thing uh having something like that becoming your phone and then just your phone on a bigger screen it's very, very realistic. It's very possible. Well, I, I think uh, it, we're all convinced. You, you don't need to keep selling it. But I, I think we should do a show where we just line up all the devices you've bought over the years and, and just take a look at and, and maybe we could figure out then here's the, the features we'd like to take from this one, and this one did a good job doing this, and we can put together that perfect uh, Frankenstein system. And then be and, even sadder when it doesn't come into that, existence. <laughs> yeah, it, that, uh, we're here at CES 2025, and oh, still no, still yeah. no. Uh, well, let's shift gears now uh, to the cloud. Uh, our first in a, in a few cloud stories here, uh, Amazon is launching uh, unified AWS auto-scaling across cloud apps. And basically, it's a way to um, give a variety of scaling options and lower infrastructure cost while boosting application performance. This is an article from Tech Republic. So uh, what does that mean for us as, uh, as people administrating sites on AWS? All right, in, in the AWS world, there's a couple of things that make cloud services like this really, really powerful. And the ability to auto-scale is one of those things. Like uh, in, in a, a private data center, if I have five web servers and my load is getting a, a little too high and I need to go to six servers, well, I would have to go and get a purchase order filled out, you know, get it approved by my accounting department to purchase a sixth server. I would have to order it, get it delivered, get it installed, configured, bring it up. It, it would take a week, week and a half, just to get that sixth server in. So that's how long it would take me to respond to increased load time on a, on a data farm. And, and that's not realistic in today's world where your company might go viral and you need to increase your load by 100% overnight. Well, in the cloud, you can do that. And if you do it manually, well, it works, right? But if you can do it automatically, that's even better. And with Microsoft Azure, Google Compute Engine, with uh, Amazon's AWS, all of them, uh, they've got some kind of functionality to be able to do that, to just automatically start cloning your web servers and, and building that. I'm using web servers as an example. It actually works with a number of things. But it was originally designed for these application-type servers. And in AWS, that meant it was a part of EC2, or the Elastic Compute Cloud, where, where you run your virtual machines, or they call them instances, because they have to have a different word for everything. And so that's where it was kind of born and where it existed in the beginning. But over time, 
when you auto scale, you you have this challenge. You've got to configure these rules to test for what's the workload and when do you scale out and so on. And when it was just instances, it was easy to watch those. But now you've got people doing containerized deployments. They're doing Docker deployments. They're doing um, you know things that interact directly with a database. And these were things that EC2 wasn't designed to do. It's a separate service, right? But auto-scaling worked for it. And so each of these different services were kind of managing in a different way, which made it confusing. And so now Amazon has stepped in and said, all right, auto-scaling has grown big enough, grown across enough services that we need to go ahead and, and make it this, this single thing that spreads across all the services as opposed to different configurations all over the place. So it makes life a heck of a lot easier. And what I'm hoping it does is I hope that it improves uh, people's knowledge and awareness to know like, hey, if I'm deploying in the cloud, I should be taking advantage of auto-scaling. That if you're not, you're really missing out on one of the biggest benefits of being in a, a cloud-type infrastructure. Yeah, I used to uh, work at a, a web development company, and uh, I, I can speak to the uh, issues you would have before this. We had a, uh, a client, one in particular, who uh, was featured on Shark Tank. And so we knew ahead of time it's airing on this date. We had to go and, and call the hosting provider, uh, you know, have them uh, roll up a couple more servers and be ready for that. And, you know, it, it had its hiccups, but we were able to, to maintain the load, but then scale back down afterwards um, to where we needed to be. And then they did a, a rerun, uh, you know, a couple uh. months later. And we and didn't even know that was coming. And so all of a sudden the servers are down again. So, you know, these kinds of things don't happen in, in this type of environment. So that's something that... Uh, yeah, this was definitely a pain point for a lot of people that hopefully the next generation will be able to take for granted. Yeah, and, and it helps to insulate you if you make a bad guess, right? Mm -hmm. So, hey, we're going to be on Shark Tank next week, and I need to increase my server workload by 100%. I'm going to just double the amount of servers I've got. And maybe that's way more than I actually needed, so now I've wasted money. Or maybe that turns out to not even be enough, right? So a bad estimate can still ruin things. With auto-scaling... You can scale to whatever size you need, and it's all instantaneous. I mean, it's a, a really, really important feature to use, and now you don't even have to estimate. I don't care how much workload comes my way. I can handle it. As long as I can pay the bill, I can handle the load that's going to come in. So um, so that that's really cool, and it is nice that this is now kind of standardized across the different services, and they, they actually list on here. Um, so EC2 is what I mentioned. That's where, where a lot of this was born, but it's also got um, – uh, EC2 spot fleets, DynamoDB tables, and DynamoDB global secondary indexes, Aurora replicas, uh, all of these were starting to have uh, auto-scaling. You've also got things like CloudFormation and Elastic Beanstalk, where they're tying EC2 instances to other services, and they had auto-scaling as well, and that's getting wrapped in there. And this goes hand-in-hand -hand with a lot of changes that Amazon's been making. Uh, for example, the Elastic Load Balancers, or ELB, uh, those are now being replaced by ALBs, which are more robust and handle more things than just EC2 instances. So we'll, we'll see more of this as time goes on. Well, and one of the ways that uh, Amazon is able to keep up with this is by continuing to make an investment in additional data centers. And they actually uh, just hit a milestone where they established their 50th uh, cloud zone, uh, they call it, in London. So I know we talked about another one recently um, in, in the Europ uh, European Union, um, this one uh, in London. And so just, uh, you know, just shows the continued investment and, and how that's going to continue to ramp up more and more. Yeah, you know, last week we were talking about it because they added a whole new region, mm -hmm. and this time they're adding a zone. And so I think it is important to understand the difference between those, that um, in the Amazon world, I'm, I'm, I'm Googling feverishly here to find the map that Amazon puts out on this stuff. But um, what they do is when they build a data center, uh, 
if it's a brand new data center, they're building what's called a region, a new location, right? So last week we talked about Paris, mm -hmm. uh, Paris, France, and that was a new region for them. But then inside of a region, it gets divided up into zones. And each zone is technically a completely independent data center. So if you take their Virginia region, the, the U.S. East Virginia region, uh, it actually has five zones in it. Well, five public zones. There's actually a couple more that are private zones. But there's there's U.S. East 1A, U.S. East 1B, 1C, 1D, and, and so on. So those are each completely independent data centers that don't share hardware infrastructure. So they have their own routers, their own internet work connections, their own power connections, all completely separate. So AWS just keeps adding more and more and more of these. And the one that they added in London is, uh, uh, you know, it's their, their 50th. So 50 data centers. There's not many companies that can build out as many data centers as Amazon has. And, uh, uh, and to be able to support that type of infrastructure, that is a, that is a big, big challenge. So uh, my, my Google Kung Fu is just <laughs> not good enough to find. Well, I'll ask you, so what, what is the point of it being uh, part of a, a, a region then, if it, if it is autonomous and able to um, kind of stand up on its own? Is all of the data from that zone still funneling back through that, that region before it, it hits the internet? I found it. Oh, okay. <laughs> Sorry. Did, uh, I'll just ask that question again completely. <laughs> so you saw, um, no, so, so the point is, when, when they build out oh, yeah. a, when they want to build out a data center, they've got to have land, right? And they can rent land, but if you're going to build a giant, you know, do a giant investment, you'd rather own the land, right? So part of this is real estate. If I can buy a big enough tract of land in one place, then I can build more than one data center there as long as I make sure they're getting independent resources. Now, when they build one of these data centers, it'll normally have five or maybe even 10 different ISPs that are providing internet service to it. And then they'll have at least two power grid connections from two independent power grids or power sources. So, I mean, this is a high level of redundancy, each data center treated separately. And as you look at this map, each circle on this map represents one of their data centers, right? Or one of their regions. And in the region, they have data centers. And so you see like here, there's a, a number six. So there's actually six different data centers or zones right there in one region. So they might all be on the same property. They typically are. Okay, I see. But yep. it's uh, but they stand alone. So if one were to go down, the next one is able to pick up the load and in, continue. In theory, the other one would not. Yep. And and whenever you hear about a like a an AWS outage, the outages usually just affect one data center, one zone, right? And so if you have multi-zone replicas, then it's no big deal. You're fine. You you survive the outage. But every now and then, an entire region might go down. And that's something a lot of people don't plan for, is they say, all right, well, I'm going to deploy this web server farm, and I'm going to have some in U.S. East 1A and some in U.S. East 1C. Well, if U.S. East 1 goes down, if the whole region goes down, you just lost both of those zones. So you're better off doing a multi-region deployment and stick some in uh, U.S. East 1 and uh, you know Asia East 1 or, or Northeast 1. So one of those. And, and that way you're really spread out that way. And you'd have to have like a full-on Amazon outage, which so far has never happened. It's always been, I, I think their biggest one actually did affect a region, 
They've never had one go company wide. Well, you've just jinxed uh, AWS there I with know. that. They're so screwed now. Knock on wood. <laughs> uh, so uh, another map uh, we want to look at too, related to Amazon, is actually uh, a, a big deal going on in in the states right now, or I guess in North America, uh, where uh, Amazon is down to twenty finalists for their second North American headquarters, which I don't understand. If I understand the word headquarters, I don't know how you can have a second headquarters. You could have a, a European headquarters and a North American headquarters. But anyway, a second North American headquarters, uh, and they, uh, they're they down to the top 20 cities now. And I think there's only one outside of the States in, uh, in Toronto. Um, I guess nothing south of the border. But uh, we've got the, yeah, that map up up here. So uh, each of those cities kind of uh, making their pitches, I guess, at this point, it's, kind of, it's almost like the Olympics where you're saying, you know, here's the number of, of uh, you know, people in the workforce that we have, the infrastructure, the uh, most importantly, uh, probably the tax break that we will provide yeah. uh, to yeah. Amazon if you go ahead and put your data center in our location. Yeah, there's a few significant things about this. You know, unlike the Olympics, this is, you know, where the Olympics are like, hey, all these cities are bidding to lose a ton of money <laughs> yeah. just to would get... You, would you like to make a billion-dollar investment in infrastructure yeah. for a two-week thing? Yeah, Here the Olympics, that's a tough one. Yeah. Um, not a lot of success stories out of that one. Um, but in this case, it's more like, hey, we're going to come and create 50,000 jobs in your area. So cities are, are actively bidding on that and, and just being known for having an Amazon headquarters. Uh, right now, Amazon's headquarters is in Seattle, Washington, which is you know pretty remote. It's way up here in the Northwest, and all the other dots you'll see are pretty far away from Seattle. So they're trying to get some some distance, likely so they can, uh, you know, better service different areas or uh, provide redundancy in the event that Seattle has an earthquake or, sure. or something of that nature. But the Toronto thing, let's touch on that really quick, because um, some of you may not know that Toronto is, is in another country. Huh. <laughs> so it's in Canada. And if Amazon were to pick Toronto for headquarters too, that's not just a matter of, oh, we're going to you know build a building over there. That can be really significant. If, if in the U.S. there's a bit of controversy right now over how Amazon charges sales tax. And if Amazon gets tired of that and doesn't want to put up, that can be leverage where they can say, you know what? We've got a second headquarters over in Toronto. Maybe we'll just close the Seattle headquarters. And now we're a Canadian company. that They could, they could do that. Um, that would give them a lot more leverage when it comes to doing tax arguments and, and debate and, and so on. So that's pretty significant. I don't know what the likelihood of that is, though, because it's really difficult to move your headquarters to another country. So we'll, Yeah, that's we'll probably a bargaining chip, uh, that, uh, leaving that on the map, but but definitely an interesting point, especially with um, the whole story right now with Apple, you know, bringing, what is it, $35 billion or something like that, or, or no, more, a lot more than that. That's the... the re, uh, Patriation tax that they're. I love uh, that term. Repatriate, yeah. like these dollars, they're they're patriots. Yeah. They and have they're... to take the oath, and now they're American citizens again, and 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 they're back. Yeah. Like like there's just a stack of bills sitting in a warehouse somewhere. So uh, apparently there there actually is oh, like okay. thirty billion dollars just, just sitting cash. in a bank account. Wow, and it's it and it's liquid. Like most most companies say, like oh we're worth billions of dollars, but it's it's in stock options yeah. and and land. Apple, it's literally just money sitting there. We could there write a check account. right now for, and, yeah. And if they were to bring that over, they would have to pay a huge tax burden on it. So like, no, we're not going to bring it over. But then then they can't spend it. Mm. I, yeah, I don't know what the end game is there. So 
Who knows what will happen? Yeah, we're all moving to Toronto. Uh, <laughs> well, speaking of the cloud uh, and NAWS, uh, our next story is about uh, actually Azure and um, the gains that Microsoft Azure is making on AWS in the public cloud computing market. This is an article from businesschief.com. Uh, and they've got the numbers here uh, that in the fourth quarter of 2017, Azure's uh, market share rose from 16% to 20%. And um, you know, four percent—that's that's pretty significant, especially just over a short time of of one quarter. And uh, definitely uh, would be eating into the uh, eight hundred pound gorilla in the room, uh, AWS. Yeah, and you know, I I, uh, I I always like to watch this stuff. Amazon has such a big head start on a lot of this, and uh, most of that stems from their origin story, which is. Hey, they're an online retailer. They needed this infrastructure that was highly redundant. So why not build it out? And what you're not using, you can rent out to other people to recoup the losses. That That's how AWS started. Well, for Microsoft, it's not like that. I mean, they, they do have a global infrastructure for some of their systems, but it wasn't at the volume level of Amazon's. Because if Microsoft's website went down, that didn't really affect whether Windows 95 would boot up. Or, you know, so, so they didn't have to have that same infrastructure. So Microsoft specifically set out to build an AWS competitor. And I've been surprised at how well they've done with that. Azure is actually a really good product. Other vendors are doing the same thing. Google with their Google Compute Engine, IBM with theirs, whose name I can never remember because um, they changed it. It was like Blue Link, and then they changed yeah. it to something else. I and this, this mentions Intel as well as a potential player. Are they in, in the market that you're aware of? I haven't heard of that one. Uh, maybe indirectly. I mean, I've heard of Intel. I, yeah, well, yeah. Um, <laughs> They're now, the ones with the chips leaking all the data, right? Well, Intel has been pushing their um, – what's their operating system? They started making their own Linux. A clear Linux? Is that what it's called? Where it's, it's a specific distribution of Linux that is – optimized to run in virtualized environments on Intel processors. And um, uh, yeah, the- Clear Linux. Clear Linux, there we go. So the uh, the Linux benchmarking site, Pharonix, they did some studies on it, and like pretty much every application they tested ran better under Clear Linux. But it don't don't take that as me saying, oh, format your laptop, put Clear Linux on there. It It's designed to run in a virtual machine, and it's designed to run in a cloud environment. And so with a cloud payload, you know, I'm talking about a server payload, it will get you better performance. So a lot of people are starting to look to that to use as the underlying layer for their Docker containers and other products. So I know Intel does that. As far as actually competing in the data center space, I'm not aware of that. So who knows? Uh, maybe if any of you guys out there uh, are familiar with that, make sure to shout out to us on social media and say, I can't believe you haven't heard of... <laughs> Uh, we can make up a name, yeah. right? Um, Intel Cloud Inside. Intel uh, uh, Spectre. Uh, Intel, <laughs> that's no, right. that's taken. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, we'll, we'll yeah. think of something. They're looking to melt down the cloud industry <laughs> with their new cloud offering. One chip at a time. <laughs> well, uh, <laughs> more some more cloud news here and uh, related back to Azure as well. Um, this is an article from, from ZDNet uh, talking about how to run Linux on Microsoft's Azure Cloud. But uh, we just wanted to talk a little bit more about that because we've... Uh, that, that's not necessarily news there, but I know we've talked recently about the investment that Microsoft's making in, in open source technology, and, and this article stating that uh, 40% of all uh, instances on Azure are, are running on Linux. So um, just shows that this is not a, um, hey, we're going to throw you a bone and, and put you know 5% of our, our machines uh, in this environment, but but 40%, almost half now, uh, are running on uh, on Linux. That's That's pretty impressive. Yeah, this, this is one that continues to amaze me because I, I know when, when Microsoft originally said they were going to offer Linux virtual machines in uh, Azure Linux, or in just Azure, I, 
I kind of assumed that they were going to end up doing something like uh, Susie Linux, right? Because they had that deal with Novell, and it's all kind of tied together. But they they didn't just stop there because they have they have CentOS support, they have Red Hat support, Ubuntu. So you have the flexibility to do whichever operating system is you want. You throw it in there and you get it up and going. And they found that there's been a huge uptake in Linux. And Microsoft has been shifting that way. I, I, one of my predictions uh, that we talked about a little bit at the, the New Year's episode was that I really wouldn't be surprised if by the end of this year there's some kind of Microsoft Linux that, that comes out, some kind of distribution that they bake themselves because they've released SQL Server for Linux now. Uh, they've released the Visual Code um, code editor, which runs on Linux, Mac OS, and Windows. And now the, the news article that I kind of tacked on to our show uh, just maybe a few minutes before the show started was that the uh, on the Microsoft PowerShell team blog, they've announced PowerShell Core 6.0, uh, which is a new version of PowerShell. It is generally available, so it's available right now. You can go download it from Microsoft's site. In the past, if you were a Windows user, you'd say, oh, yeah, yeah I can go to Microsoft's site and download it. If you were a Mac user or a Linux user, you'd say, PowerShell is <laughs> lame. But now you can say, oh, I'll go and download it because PowerShell 6.0 is the first one to actually support Mac OS and Linux. So they've actually got where you can run your PowerShell on these other operating systems. You can connect up and manage Microsoft servers with it now, and in time, you'll be able to connect and manage other things. Specifically, we're thinking the, the Azure Linux deployments, right? So that you can use the PowerShell and all of its associated commandlets to manage your Windows and your PowerShell system. I mean, sorry, your Windows and your Linux systems. Now, I don't know when that's going to happen. So for right now, it just means that if you're a system administrator, you could actually run a Mac or run Linux, and you could launch a PowerShell session to manage your Windows servers without actually having to fire up a VM to, to get to it or use remote desktop or whatever. So another sign that Microsoft is moving into support more and more Linux, and this goes back to that, that prediction that I have, which is I really think we're going to see things like Active Directory and SQL Server and Microsoft Exchange become containerized where they can run on top of Linux. And then if you have your PowerShell running on top of Linux, you can actually operate in that environment and Windows Server becomes fairly obsolete uh, or just not, not so much obsolete as unnecessary. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that's probably the direction we're going in. So is there anything else uh, interesting about PowerShell um, 6.0 or is it is is just the big change that it's just supports these other uh, systems now? To, to me, that's the big change. Um, there are a few other little things that were added in, but nothing too super crazy. Um, you'll see where they did experimental support for ARM32 and ARM64. So more and more companies are realizing that while Intel is kind of the de facto standard for processors, that there probably will be a time where Intel isn't the de facto standard. So they're starting to, to branch out a little more to, to handle ARM processors. Um, the other thing was the the breadth of the operating system support. So they're doing Red Hat, CentOS, Debian, Ubuntu, OpenSUSE, Fedora, macOS, right? I mean, uh, macOS 10.12 and higher. So a number of different systems all being kind of wrapped yeah, in there. If you scroll down right there, uh, down right about there, it says check out uh, what's new in PowerShell 6.0. So it's kind of got a full list there. And that's a different link than I yeah. clicked on. But, uh, yeah, it looks like it moved from the .NET framework to .NET Core. And then the support for Mac and Linux is, is the next thing listed there. Some yeah, stuff the, about logging. Those are the and, big selling yeah. features, right? But, I mean, you know, there's a bunch of other stuff. It, it, it's got semantic versioning. Woohoo! Oh, yeah. finally. So, yeah, not as, uh, not as exciting. But well, SSH-based PowerShell remoting. Uh, PowerShell remoting or, or PSM. 
uh, or sorry, PSR, if I can get my acronym right. Uh, that one's been around for a little while, and it used some of the Windows TLS encryption, but now it can do SSH-based. Uh, there's Docker support, uh, which has been in beta for a while, so that's not so much new, but I guess it's generally available now. Uh, so you can actually manage your Docker deployment. Um, you know, little little known fact that if you run Linux as your operating system and you want to run Docker, Docker Enterprise costs money. It's not free, right? Mm -hmm. So Docker itself is kind of open source, but then to run Docker Enterprise, you got to pay for those features. But if you have a Windows server, Microsoft's actually negotiated out with them where you get Docker Enterprise for free on a Windows server. So uh, not many people run Docker on a Windows server. I think that's why they did that, but, uh, but you can do it. How so. dare they make us pay for their intellectual uh, property? It's crazy. Uh, so <laughs> speaking of um, some of the, the big players out there and their, their own Linux distributions, well, I guess this isn't their own, but uh, Google ha is changing now from Ubuntu to uh, Debian as their in-house Linux distro. And so that's not the kind of thing that really affects you and me as, as individuals, but just interesting to see. I know we've had some, some episodes in the past about uh, you know, how to choose a Linux distro and what's important for you. So um, any insight into why they might have yeah. made a move like this? So um, up until now, Google's been pretty tight-lipped on the operating system they run inside of their company, that if you are a Googler, if you go to work for Google, uh, and you get a company-issued machine, many employees are issued a Chromebook. And so if you're given a Chromebook, you're running Chrome OS, that's, that's a given. But for their desktop users, which are almost all of the developers, they run Linux. But it's their own spin of Linux. And um, most people refer to it as Gubuntu, that <laughs> it was the Google version of Ubuntu. They would take Ubuntu Linux, and they would modify it pretty significantly. So it, it was not the same kernel. Uh, it had a lot of inline kernel patches and stuff that were applied that made it different than regular Ubuntu. Um, so many people would say, like, boy, I, I want to run their version. I bet their version runs awesome, which, for the record, it, it, it really doesn't because it, it's got a lot of, of older libraries. It's not, it's not necessarily the cutting edge in some areas. In some areas it is, some areas it isn't because they're trying to make it reflect the various platforms they're developing for. So it's not really something we'd want to run outside of Google, but they, they do it themselves. Now, they announced... Uh, kind of just, it wasn't like a big announcement we're doing this. It was one of their, uh, their people was at a tech roundtable and, and made the comment that they were going to be switching to Debian. And I think it's important to, to add a little bit of context to this so we know what it really means. Because Ubuntu is based on Debian already, right? So Google is just saying, hey, let's cut out the middleman and just go straight to Debian. More importantly, Ubuntu, it's not just based on stable Debian. It's based on the testing branch of Debian, kind of like the beta branch, which is one of the reasons why I don't like Ubuntu. But, um, uh, but you know, so they, they basically build that one off of this, this testing branch to be a little more cutting edge, to be a little closer to what's the latest software that's released. Well, Ubuntu is based off of Debian testing. So Google just said, look, we're going to switch and base off of Debian testing, and that's that. Now, Peter, you mentioned this doesn't really affect us. It could if you run Debian as your operating system or even if you run Ubuntu because Google, they run testing on all of this stuff. And when they find flaws or bugs or fixes, they submit it upstream. They send it up to you know Debian headquarters and the team at Debian can look at it and integrate that into their code. So they, they are making Debian better. And as it gets better, Ubuntu gets better because it's based off of it, right? So in a way, Google is sending hundreds of thousands, maybe even millions of dollars worth of developer time into fixing and stabilizing those operating systems. And that really does help that, that culture. And while it's not directly through Ubuntu anymore, now it's just upstreamed to Debian, 
they both still benefit. So at the end of the day, this doesn't necessarily impact your average end user as much as it would impact an employee at Google. But uh, but it is neat to hear, and it gives a little bit of of insight into how these open source projects can survive the way they do without taking funding. Like, how has Debian stayed operational without taking, you know, charging money for their OS all these years? And it's because of companies like Google that are, are just dumping tons of resources into it. It makes it a, a symbiotic relationship. Sounds good. Uh, well, t stick with Google, but shift uh, gears a little bit now to security. Another great article that we found, this is on ZDNet, um, Google awards a researcher over $110,000 for uh, an Android exploit chain. So, um, you know, th this payment of bounties, uh, I wonder if it's something we're going to see even more and more of. Uh, you know, we talk a lot about... Um, uh, you know, with, with Spectre and, and things like that, or, or I can't remember the one we talked about recently, where mm -hmm. it was basically researchers that that found these things and and uh, and share it uh, up the chain. I mean, that's uh, that's that's going to be big business here, as as uh, people maybe take off the black hat and put on a white hat to uh, to be an, an ethical hacker and and uh, and share that information along and and make some yeah. money. You know, a lot of this comes from the uh, uh, from the iOS jailbreaking days, right? So in the early days of the iPhone, there were a couple of people like, uh, was it GeoHot and people like that that would uh, create these jailbreaks for iOS so that you could run unauthorized applications on it, right? Where you break out of the walled garden that, that Apple created. Well, they would create these hacks and they would just release them to the public so everybody could do it. And they didn't really make any money on it. And that was it. They just did it because it was fun. Well, now we're finding where nation states and criminal organizations will pay really good money if you can share with them an exploit to be able to compromise people's systems. And so now these hobbyists and researchers and gray hats, black hats, white hats, whatever, um, when they find an exploit, the temptation to just sell it on the black market is really high because they can make a lot of money. So some of the bigger players in the market have started creating bug bounties and it's just to incentivize people like, hey, if you find an exploit, instead of selling it on the black market, if you tell us about it, we'll pay a reward. Now, most companies don't have the infrastructure to be able to pay that. Uh, sometimes uh, an attacker will find an exploit, and it, it might work on 100 different companies' web server because they're all the same version, and they'll go and try and claim the bounty on all 100 companies, you know, that kind of thing. That, that doesn't, uh, doesn't work out so well. But for Google, they obviously want to keep their data safe. And in Android, there are, have been some known flaws. And this one, it's not actually one exploit. It was a combination of vulnerabilities that, when strung together, allowed you to run uh, unsigned code. And that, uh, or actually, this one was worse, right? Because it was remote code. Ex yeah, it, it was remote code execution. And it's on the Pixel 2. Do you are you still rocking your Pixel 2, or you, you moved on, right? Yeah, I moved on. Yeah, yeah the Pixel 2 didn't last long with me. Uh, <laughs> so, so if you if you actually liked that thing and kept it, then, uh, <laughs> then you deserve what's coming to <laughs> you, right? Yeah. Well. The nice thing here is that Google's already patched it, yeah. right? Uh, the Pixel 2 gets monthly updates, and they were able to patch this. But they paid this team, because it was a team. I, I think they credited it to one person, but it was actually a team. Um, uh, Wang Gong was the person from Alpha Team. So uh, the team, Kihu360 Technology? Sure. Sounds domestic. Rolls right off the tongue. Uh, you know, got this, this money, and... Part of it was from the Android team. I think it was a hundred and yeah. It says down here it was uh, hundred and five thousand dollars for his report, with an additional bonus of seventy five hundred through the Chrome Rewards program. 
Yeah. So this was an exploit or a combination of vulnerabilities that applied not just to Android, but to the Chrome web browser. It, Google actually has multiple bug bounty programs, and, and a lot of companies do to try and incentivize people to report these bugs. So Yeah, and it says here that the, the scheme has awarded researchers over uh, 1.5 million to date, uh, with the top research team earning 300,000 for 118 vulnerability reports. So yeah. um, just shows that we're, we're talking about big money here, and you mean, you're, you're going to see, I, I don't know if that's what these are already, but you're going to see businesses that have entire departments just um, looking for, for bugs now and and, uh, and cashing in for those, those rewards. Because yeah. When you think about what Google would pay if there was a, a, a real, or if this vulnerability was was found um, by someone with malicious intent, uh, it's going to be a lot more than three hundred grand or one yeah. and a half million. You know, yeah. you look at um, Target, right? So yeah. Target got compromised; all their credit card data got stolen, like really, really bad. Um, how much did they have to pay out to? To you know, basically work the PR yeah, angle. Yeah, I was gonna say PR brand impact and and uh, you know maybe lost customers. I don't know. Also, I will say with them, I, I most people didn't seem to care. Like they will still shop at Target, yeah. and and I, I didn't see commercials apologizing mm-hmm. or we're gonna protect your data better. They did like a blog post and it all went away. Yeah, I, sorry. Well, maybe maybe they spent a ton of money to quash media reports. Right? This go. could have been millions of dollars in bribes. We, yeah. don't, we don't know. That's so. what I assume. <laughs> well, and you take companies like uh, our next store here, Forever 21, which is one of Don and I's uh, favorite <laughs> uh, stores. We go to the mall often over lunch and uh, and browse at Forever 21. Uh, but they had a breach um, over over the last year. Um, it was affecting people apparently for months in, in 2017 uh, at the uh, – uh, the point of sale system uh, was breached, and uh, what this article is talking about is not just that the breach existed, um, because you know these things are happening all the time. But it's basically talking about how uh, AI or artificial intelligence, one of Don's favorite buzzwords as well, uh, would have caught this breach by just detecting the irregularities uh, in the system. And uh, what do you think about that, Don? Uh, you know, it, it's true that, uh, and they say artificial intelligence, and and really. <laughs> Um, this is an example of machine learning versus artificial. See, when I think of artificial intelligence, I think of a computer that can think and do on its own, right? Um, but that's not really what's happening here. The is kit from Knight Rider. Yeah, is essentially yeah, what I'm you thinking. Know, it, yeah. If it doesn't have Turbo Boost, it's not yeah. artificial intelligence. And, and it doesn't have a voice that I don't want to. I don't yeah. want to know. What and it's a little got. red light that goes back and forth. Yeah. I mean, very simple list of criteria. And this is the Turing test, right? That's what it says. Red so. light. Yeah. And uh, yeah. Um, so, but. What we normally have is machine learning. This is an example of, of words just being thrown around. Um, what the, the article is saying it is accurate, though, if you throw away the, the word part, um, that basically with Forever 21, they, they had a, a consistent type of network traffic, right? You, when you have a point-of-sale system, you have cash registers, and you scan an item, and it does a database lookup to find out what that item costs, right? Maybe, maybe the database is local. Usually it isn't. Usually it's on some centralized network. And then when the purchase occurs, it's got to reach out and talk to the credit card vendor, right, to determine if the funds are available or the card is active. And then once that's done, it processes the transaction, writes it to a receipt database, and you're done. Three different types of communications to three different destinations. If you had a security infrastructure in place, like an intrusion prevention system, an IPS, and it learned that these are the three types of communications these cash registers make, then the moment they tried to make a communication that didn't match, they said, wait a minute, we don't normally talk to a server in Lithuania or you know wherever, or, or we don't normally use SSH, we normally use this other protocol. The moment it saw abnormal traffic, it could have blocked it. It could have stopped it, and that would have prevented a breach like this. That technology has been around for over a decade, 
right? You just need to install the appliance in line in between your network and the outside or even directly uh, directly after the POS systems. And it inspects the traffic and watches it. It learns what's normal, and then you flip it into enforcement mode, and after that, it blocks everything else. Now, it's easy to look at attacks like these in hindsight and say, oh, that's, that's how we could have fixed it, right? For all we know, Forever 21 didn't even build their network. They said, hey, we're going to buy this point-of-sale system, and the point-of-sale system or POS company, which is appropriate Yeah, I was going to say, POS, uh, POS there, huh? They they may have come out and, and installed the network and set all of that up. Like they, they may have been completely managed. So Forever 21 might have been trusting that on this contracted organization. We don't know those details yet, but... Um, and, and sometimes we never find out. Sometimes it does turn out to be their fault, but it could go either way on this one. But yeah, the technology is out there. Um, you know, I, I see stuff like this, and you know, the first thing I thought when I heard it, because this attack was several months ago, um, when I first saw this one, I was like, man, I wonder if this is going to be like the Ashley Madison breach. Do you remember that one? Uh, no. <laughs> no, I don't. And everybody was like, oh, I can't wait to see who's in that database, right? Who, who's got a user account on that yeah. one? And there were several several high-profile people that turned up in it. I was like, ooh, who's going to turn up in the Forever 21 <laughs> database? Everyone in middle school, I'm sure, was <laughs> looking. Are you in the? Yeah. Who's oh, Stacy shops there. Oh, goodness. Very exciting stuff. But, uh, yeah, that might that might have solved it. But I'm sure the, the POS <laughs> company has uh, changed their name now. And even if we hear about it, it's... It's a company that doesn't exist anymore. Uh, so next up in the in the great news of, of things that uh, make you feel good, uh, Ghost Team Adware can steal Facebook credentials. Uh, and what's interesting about this story uh, is not that they're able to steal credentials and serve up surreptitiously pushed ads. That's a fun word to say. But uh, the, the way that this was uncovered was 53 apps in the Google Play Store that were basically um, giving this access. I know we've talked recently about uh, Amazon's ecosystem for apps, how it's a little different than um, than iOS, where you've got you've got choices. You've got Google Play, you've got Amazon, uh, and you've got a, a bunch of different ones out there. But interesting to see that this actually came from the big one, from the Google Play Store, and and that these these apps with this malicious code were able to make their way in the system. So how does something like that uh, make its way past those those protections there to, yeah. to stop that? You know, um, it is interesting because like Apple. They actually have a, a manual review process. The app goes up, and a human being runs it through a series of tests to inspect to see if it, if it phones home or sends inappropriate data or you know, doesn't match up with their terms of service. Google doesn't do that. Google has an automated scanner that runs across it. And automated scanners, well, they usually just detect attacks that are well-known. So in this case, it was a new type of attack, a new way of, of demonstrating this, and Google scanners just didn't pick it up. Now, once Google becomes aware of it, they can take action. They can remove it from the, the Play Store, and they can even send out a bullet to all of the Android phones to uninstall it if it's already installed. So they can find that. This one was um, a little frustrating because the way that it infected the system, uh, it was kind of hard to get out. So I'm, I'm not entirely sure that Google can remote uninstall this one. Um, but it's also frustrating that it made it into the official Play Store. Now, where you usually see stuff like this spread, when you read articles online about so-and-so mobile adware or, or spyware, um, it's almost always affecting Asian markets. Because in Asian markets, uh, piracy is fairly rampant, but also because you have a lot of state-filtered internet, like China with the, the Great Firewall of China, um, where they might not have access to the normal Google Play Store, so they install some third-party Play Store that has untrusted apps and you get infected. 
In this case, it was coming from the Google Play Store. But did you did you see the chart? Let me bring the chart up here, where they're showing the countries most affected by Ghost Team by by this uh, this collection of apps, and it's all Asian countries: India, Indonesia, Brazil. Oh, Brazil's not. Indonesia, <laughs> I was, sorry, I was waiting for you to get to that uh, one in basic, Australia. Basic geography. Yeah, it's, it's uh, some, Vietnam. Yeah, Australia. Which all right, Australia is not Asia. But it's, it's most close. of their internet connectivity does run yeah. through Asia. It'll pass through Malaysia. Uh, and then you've got the Philippines. So it is mostly Asian markets and, and Brazil somehow. So I don't know why that is. I'm, I'm kind of curious. When when you explain it as, oh, they're using third-party networks because or third-party play Android stores, whatever, because of state-filtered internet, that makes sense to me. But when you take that argument out, like this is just in the regular Google Play Store, did something stop it from getting in the U.S. Play Store, or did they just not submit it, hoping it wouldn't get noticed? Or I wonder uh, if these are apps that are in certain languages, maybe, so the people that are downloading them are, yeah. are going to be the people in, in those markets. That That's interesting, though. We can see if we can find out some more about that in the coming weeks uh, as, as more and more comes out about that, hopefully. Uh, and just by the way, every time you're talking, I want to reach over and grab from the popcorn. But if you go to Don's shot here, we can see now that <laughs> it, the popcorn is still in the shot. So if I, I just don't want to be this guy in the see? middle of while you're talking. And now you got to remember that most of our subscribers are uh, audio only. Oh and see, yeah, you just gave yourself you gave yourself away. That's Nobody would have known. Yeah, they're, well, they're <laughs> until they heard the, the crunch. Yeah, the, <laughs> the chewing might be a big uh, tip off there. Um, so next up, we want to talk about um, a a new macOS malware uh, that hijacks DNS settings and takes screenshots, so they can see everything I'm, I'm doing now? Is that is that what's going on? This this one sounds scary to me. Is this is this one of those where the headline sounds scary, but in, in reality it's it's affecting 1% um, of 1% of people? Yeah, so this one is, uh, it, it, it sort of is scary if you get it. Uh, your system gets infected. It begins monitoring what you do and taking screenshots. Now, key loggers are a really big problem because they can record your passwords as you type them. Screenshots aren't normally a problem. Because most most applications, when you type a password, it's obscured. So you know maybe you bring up your banking details, but they didn't get your password, and you know maybe your account number is displayed on the screen. So that does kind of limit the exposure there by doing a screen capture like that. Um, typically, how you'll see these used, and we haven't seen how this one gets used yet, um, is that they do screen captures and wait for you to access inappropriate materials, uh, and then use it for blackmail. Like they'll do targeted blackmail on these things. Um, this one is very early on, so we're not really sure. Uh, it's not a very sophisticated attack. It's basically a Trojan horse that you install some application, not from the Apple App Store, but honestly, that's a barren wasteland. Uh, you know how people say the, uh, the Windows App Store is basically empty compared to the iOS App Store? Well, the macOS App Store is practically empty compared to the iOS App Store. Uh, so most people are installing applications on macOS from directly from third-party providers. So you install an application, and it's got malware in it. And Apple will release a fix for this if they haven't already that'll prevent that from occurring. But if you install the app, it installs a false root certificate. So you begin to trust these signed certificates or signed uh, applications that are then able to be installed and, and actually affect the system and modify it in a way that can't easily be recovered from. Once that happens, then it has access to everything. So right now it is collecting a bunch of information. Um, this article actually came from hackread.com. And if you go to their website uh, and, and read the article, down towards the bottom they give a few ways to tell if you're already infected. 
the main thing that the uh, the infection does is that it will change your DNS servers. Most people don't manually set a DNS server. They use DHCP, and you can spot the malware DNS servers because they're 82.163.142.137 and 82.163.143.135. It's the same for every infected machine. So if you spot those, that's a good indicator that you are infected uh, and that your system has been compromised. And uh, they wrote somewhere on here, there's a download link, they wrote a little checker you can use to run to see if you've got it. Um, but honestly, you don't really need that. If you just see those DNS servers, those are not normal DNS servers, and it's a pretty good indicator your system has been compromised. Well, I just checked, and, and I'm I'm good here. So uh, You still running Sierra? <laughs> yes, <Yeah>. I am. <laughs> I, I, will, I just will not make that jump, and uh, and, and maybe, maybe sometime soon. And I keep getting the uh, – what I love, too, about the Sierra uh, upgrade, it, it keeps saying – uh, hey, Sierra exists. You should upgrade. And my options on the on the box are uh, install now or learn more. There's no no thank you. So I actually have to open the the app store and then just close the app store and uh, <laughs> and deal with that every every couple of days now. Um, but it's more uh, uh, it's easier for me to do that than it is to deal with uh, all the viruses and things that uh, are affecting High Sierra. I I like to look at it as you are uh, you're thinking differently. Oh, there you uh, go. You know, yeah. there's uh, you could upgrade to High Sierra, but everybody's doing that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm thinking I don't uh, want my information compromised, so <laughs> I'm not there yet. Uh, and uh, and in what is turning out to maybe be a not so great week uh, for Apple, uh, another one here, and this is something you said you've heard before, so it's not necessarily oh, yeah. new, but uh, a text bomb is the latest Apple bug. So basically, where someone can text you a link, and it sounds like without even going to that link. Uh, it's able to to crash certain elements uh, of your phone, where either it crashes messages or even um, shuts down the phone. So something that is 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 not uh, a mission critical thing, but it's definitely uh, an annoyance. Yeah, and you know we talked briefly about it before the show, and I didn't mean that I had seen this specific. Sure, that code, there was actually yeah. a similar one years ago where you could send somebody a text message, and if they unlocked their phone and read the test text message, it would turn their phone off. And so you could quickly, uh, you know, basically do a denial of service in a way. You know, you're turning their phone off. And they would just turn it back on. It's not the end of the world. But when they turn it back on, what would happen? Text message was still there, right? Mm -hmm. And so a lot of times people would have to restore from a uh, an iTunes backup or whatever to, to get around that. Well, this one's a little bit similar, except it's actually more effective. Because if you have where your text messages are displayed on your lock screen, when you receive the text message, the phone actually parses it to display it on the lock screen, and it locks the phone up. Now, the reports are coming back a little mixed, and I, I don't have an iPhone to test this. Um, but some and people I will are, not let you use my uh, iPhone well, to test this. Uh, we'll, we'll use your uh, your Foscam. Uh, <laughs> so uh, some people are reporting that it, it locks their phone up, and then they have to reboot. Other people are saying that it actually makes their phone reboot automatically. So I, I'm not sure what condition leads to what. Uh, and this came from the BBC. They didn't have uh, too much more on, on the detail here. Uh, but they're basically saying, look, don't don't be alarmed. This is is not it's not like they get your data. It just annoys you. But, you know, let's say you're having an emergency and you go to call 911 or for our you know, British listeners, 999. They go to dial that number and, and all of a sudden your phone reboots because somebody was pulling a prank on you. Right. That, that could could cause you uh, an issue there. But at the end of the day, it's just not uh, not the, the end of the world. But this will get patched pretty quick. I don't view this as like a security exploit as much as it is just a, a bug, you know, something yeah. that needs to be fixed. It's not like, 
oh, you can uh, bypass the pin screen by leaving it blank, which is unfortunately what Apple's been doing lately. So, uh, you know, this is, is definitely lower on the, the scale of, of flaws. But Apple's been under a lot of scrutiny lately, so this one's gotten a lot of press. Is it 999 in Germany as well? I don't know. I just know UK. I've just been no, no, no. Yeah. Um, I, uh, I went to France I a, a few years ago, yeah. and I just said, hey, I'm, I'm not going to have an emergency because I don't know what to dial. There you go. Yeah, that works. <laughs> yeah, well, this also says it, it happens uh, on computers, on Mac computers. Uh, it will cro- cause the Safari browser to crash um, when you when you go to this uh, this link as well. So um, it sounds like something that maybe people will just start sending around to their enemies or, um, hey, go and try this, see if it works. Like, uh, you know, you, you know, you can charge your, your iPhone by putting it in the microwave. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, that's just something that went around for a while too, and a lot of people uh, went ahead and that, tried that. And uh, it was an April Fool's joke. <laughs> and uh, you know, when you post something on the internet, it stays around a lot more than just one day. So yeah. my idea was a pregnancy test on the iPhone that you can figure out how that works, <laughs> but uh, probably a little, little less of an issue. Um, speaking of patches and uh, and releases and fixes, uh, we've talked a lot about Spectre. Uh, and uh, Meltdown and other things in the past. And, and last week, I think we talked uh, about how those patches, in a lot of cases, were causing more issues as well, um, specifically on Windows 10. Uh, it was just the ARM? No, this is the AMD devices on Windows 10, where basically the patch was causing some systems to crash and lock up and, and uh, be completely unresponsive. So Windows now has uh, released uh, three new uh, releases uh, for that to make... Uh, to, to address those unbootable state issues and and make it so uh, things finally work. So hopefully we're seeing um, the last of, of those patches now coming out. It sounds like um, you know there was there's some issues with with Linux. There were some issues. Um, uh, Apple's went pretty smooth. I guess they had some issues. They did uh, yeah. in, at first, but uh, they were able to, to fix those relatively quickly. So now we can kind of uh, switch our focus back to the the root cause and and see how we can uh, get to a system where we're able to. Uh, leverage all of the power of our machines now. I've been shocked at the internet sentiment. Like, if you go on to Reddit or Hacker News or, or sites like that, there's a lot of people talking, saying, boy, who who sells servers with AMD processors? I, we're leaving Intel. <laughs> well, at the server level, Intel performance is so much greater than AMD that it would be a shame if people start moving their data centers over to AMD. Um, hopefully, Intel gets everything squared away. We don't have these kind of problems going forward. But uh, you know, I do want to caution all the listeners out there, don't make a knee-jerk reaction. Just because there was a flaw in an Intel processor doesn't mean the other processors are better, right? Like ARM processors are still slower. They don't have the same performance level with a straight-up like an Intel i7 uh, or even a Xeon, which would, would really knock the socks off it. Uh, there is still a, a place for that. We just have to make sure we take the right security precautions. Well, that like that goes back, in my mind, to, to people saying, oh, I'm going to switch to Mac because... Uh, because they don't get viruses. Well, it's it's just for a long period of time, people didn't write viruses for Macs because you had uh, such a higher percentage of, of people on, mm-hmm. on Windows. So same kind of thing. I mean, th- these are people looking for these exploits. So if everyone switched to AMD tomorrow, they're going to spend their time uh, trying to crack in, into those chips as opposed to the Intel chips. So um, you're right, knee-jerk reactions. Um, that, that can be expensive and time-consuming, especially yeah. in the server field. Although it would be good for AMD. Yeah, that's, I'm, sure, <laughs> I'm sure they're the, the ones uh, pushing that campaign. Um, so, at last and final thing we wanted to cover today is a uh, just a, a language change, uh, kind of to uh, CompTIA. Their cybersecurity analyst uh, course was called CSA Plus, 
and now it's C Y S A plus, and uh, and why was this? <laughs> why? So I see what you did there. Yeah. Uh, you know, Again, we, I, we need that rim shot here. We've talked boom, about boom, that. Boom. Yeah, that's. We, uh, uh, you know, we actually joked around about this quite a bit, like because. Uh, the first time I was told, you know, in my mind, I'm like, CYA plus what? <laughs> you have to have a certification for that? I understand that one. Um, but no, it, they are doing it as CYSA. And, you know, it's the Cybersecurity Analyst Plus. Uh, if you're not familiar with the certification, it's actually a really good certification that CompTIA just released. It, it's only been out, uh, you know, less than a year. And it's designed to, to basically cover people who are doing auditing and pen testing. You know, how do you evaluate a network to make sure it's secure? What tools do you need to know and what processes do you need to follow to test that? Super relevant in the, in the current landscape. You know, the, in the IT world right now, there's just so many compromises. This is really good stuff. So they called it CSA, which was that cybersecurity analyst. Problem was, there was already a certification out there called CSA, and uh, you know I've forgotten. I feel like we looked it up at one point and found it, but uh, uh, so they decided they needed to rebrand uh, to not double up with the other vendor. Uh, so now it's CY, and the Y is lowercase because just CY for Cyber uh, Security Analyst Plus. So CYSA Plus. It's the exact same certification, the exact same objectives, the exact same exam number. You're just sticking a little Y in there. So anytime you hear us say CYSA+, we're talking about the same thing as CSA+, uh, definitely important. If you bought books to study for the exam under the old name, that's fine. None of that has changed. The, the, the exam and all of it is less than a year old, so it, it's definitely not going to change for a solid two years, probably. Uh, so... Looking at it from that perspective, uh, you'll probably be able to get a really good deal on books that are branded under the old name. Uh, so yeah, I wonder if, if they're stripped from the shelves, though, if there was copyright information. They are, but the used market will dry up as oh, people sure. look for the new name. Yeah, mm -hmm. uh, Good point, though, Peter, is that uh, uh, CompTIA did a, a release to all of their partners saying you need to pull back any material with the old name and put it out with the new name. So you'll see that change occurring over the next few months. Uh, and if this is the first you've heard of CSA+, be sure to check out CYSA+. It's one of the more exciting certifications to come out of, of CompTIA in a while. Everybody's heard of A+, Net+, Security+, but they have a handful of others like Project+, and uh, Cloud+, that are really good but haven't gained a ton of traction. CYSA+, more than likely will. How is this different than Security+, so um, there's actually three certifications that are, are security-related, and they're designed to go in elevating levels of difficulty. So Security Plus is kind of like foundational security that every security practitioner should know, but really every system admin and network admin should know as well. So Security Plus applies to a lot of people. CYSA Plus applies to people who are actually testing security and designing security, so actually trying it. It's a very... It's a very much more hands-on, not so much fundamentals and theories, but actually getting in there and doing something. And then you've got CASP, the uh, uh, Advanced Security Practitioner. And that's for people that are uh, actually in IT security management. And so it deals a little more with regulatory compliance and auditing and blue teaming than it does on, on the red teaming side. So each one kind of caters to a different market, but they get increasingly more difficult. Security Plus, I'm going to say it's, it's the easy one. It's actually still kind of hard. Mm -hmm. um, CYSA Plus gets a little harder. CASP is actually uh, significantly difficult. Cool. So, yeah, if you've got a 
Security Plus certification, maybe uh, go out and try the CYSA uh, Plus now and and, uh, and see what happens there. So uh, I think that's going to do it for us this time. A, a good week of news, and like you said at the top, you know nothing uh, nothing catastrophic, nothing that's going to keep us hiding under uh, the desk here. Um, you know, a few a few vulnerabilities and things to look out for, uh, but all in all, a good week and, and a lot of cool cloud news and and uh, things that leave you uh, a little excited for for 2018 coming up with um, you know the I, I'm I'm anxious to see now too if if uh, Microsoft does come out with its own Linux uh, distro and 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 see how that all plays out. But uh, like I said, that's going to do it for us this week. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast if you haven't done so already, or uh, go ahead and review it if you've done that. Uh, we'd love to get those reviews and share it with your friends uh, so you can let everyone know about this great information that we're putting out. And uh, definitely enjoy your popcorn on National Popcorn Day here. And until next time, we'll see you guys. 